Welcome to the finale of Where Others Won't, episode 89 with Owen Eastwood. Before we kick off, I just want to draw your attention to the back catalogue of this show. One of the original ideas behind Where Others Won't was to document timeless leadership lessons. So if you like this episode, you might want to scroll all the way back and listen to some of the other great guests that have been on. I've had authors and academics like Adam Grant, Whitney Johnson, James Kerr, Tasha Urich, Mita Singh, Amy Cruz, Daniel Pink, Mark Champagne, Michael Bungay-Stanya, Aidan McCullen, Pippa Grange, Doug Lamov. I've also had business leaders like Claude Silver, Gary Ridge, Dave Meltzer, Angela Ruggiero, Will Ahmed, Chip Wilson, Howard Behart, Tiffany Bover, Google Guys, Jonathan Rosenberg and Alan Eagle, Laura Gassner-Otting, Nick Stone, Claire Liu, Kevin Rutherford, Michelle Falcon, Paddy McCord from Netflix, and of course, sports leaders, Joe Dumas, Paul Ruse, Darren Burgess, Paddy Steinford, Iowa football head coach, Kirk Ferentz, Anson Dorrance, Scott Robertson, John Herdman, Lisa Alexander, Fergus Connolly, Pete DeBoer, Rasmus Ankerson, Juventus head coach Joe Montemuro, Mike Lombardi, and Mike Gervais. So get scrolling right the way back and check out some of those timeless leadership lessons from the world's best. But for now, the author of Belonging, one of the books of 2021, Owen Eastwood. Owen Eastwood, sun is out here. The sun is out in the Cotswolds. How are you, Beautiful. mate? It's great to see you. Oh, great, mate. Well, it's, I've really enjoyed our connection this year and your big-hearted generosity in terms of you know making contact and then your positive things that you've shared around um, belonging and then having this conversation. So you know, I really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks, mate. You too. Uh, it, it was funny because I hadn't seen your work and then ended up writing the final chapter in the tough stuff is about belonging. Uh, and then, uh, came across your work, which is awesome. And, and, uh, yeah, um, a great friendship ever since. So thank you for that. And let's start there actually, cause I, I have one question about belonging for you and then we're going to launch into the future and what we see coming down the pipe. But in terms of your work, if I were a new organization, a new franchise, I have no history, I have no real knowledge of where to start looking for a sense of belonging, where would you advise me to start? So, you know, for instance, if I'm an expansion franchise in Major League Soccer, and yes, I have a bit of a community groundswell around soccer or hockey or whatever it may be but nothing actually linked to the organization itself. Where would you start when we bring you in for a workshop on your work? Well, whenever I think about belonging, I see it has two dimensions, really. One is the belonging 
signals and cues in our environment and that's how we relate to each other it's how we're led um, it's those interactions it's the depth of the relationships and trust and um, making people feel secure and safe notwithstanding that they need to you know perform at a certain level so those belonging signals and cues are half the story but the other half of the story is belonging to what and this is often where teams across the board miss out where they don't actually create a story a powerful story of who we are and we need that to attach our belonging to otherwise we're just a random you know collection of individuals so we need our leaders to really well articulate this is who we are and this is our story. And for me, it, 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 you don't need 100 years. Every, every community, every family, every team has always had a genesis origin story. Some of them were hundreds of years ago, some of them thousands of years ago, some of them start tomorrow. And wherever you are on that spectrum, what you want to do is create a powerful story of who we are and who we want to be in the future. So I, I do think that the origin story is particularly potent because the way we are there, the values that we talk about and live, they can really resonate down the generations. And so what, the way I think about it when I work with a startup or a new team is that what do we want the people who will be part of this in the next two, five, 10, 20, 100 years to feel a sense of belonging to? What's the story that we want them to have passed down to them about who we were and how we did this and what type of people we were. And, and so, so I get, I honestly get as excited working with a startup or a new team as I do a team, which is like the England football team, which started in the 1870s. They're all different challenges, but ultimately it's the same one. And that is what is this belonging attached to? Do you think there's, almost even a unique power in being the first ancestors. Oh, unbelievable. I really do. And I think one thing also, just from a pragmatic point of view, is that often, you know, if we think about a startup, for example, there's a lot of adrenaline, there's, a, there's a not a lot of sleeping, there's a fair bit of risk-taking. It's like a crazy bit of magical energy that goes into trying to get something going and hopefully making it, break even and and profitable and sometimes and it's a crazy thought but like let's we'll sort the culture out later on like we just need to make some money or we just need to get some wins and we'll sort the culture out later on and and then what happens is three five ten years down the line you know there's this toxic culture that needs to be sorted out well a that is like just as stupid as i explained it but some secondly i think now we've got a much deeper understanding of why a healthy environment actually enhances performance and is not something separated from it. So if both from a performance point of view, from a belonging point of view, from a well-being point of view, let's get this right at the start as best we can. And then let's be great ancestors for the ones who follow rather than passing on some something which is unsustainable and they're going to have to fix down the line. Yeah. It's remarkable the consistency at which you see that happen really in all environments where the, the drop-off is almost as drastic as the, yeah. um, the, you know, the, the, the journey towards the top, um, both in sporting and business environments. Um, and yeah, 
particularly as we move towards environments in both business and sport where the tenure is shortening in both uh, in terms of the, the people that are within your organization in the workplace, it's plummeting. Uh, there's no 10 year kind of employees anymore, or if they are, they're very rare, especially mm-hmm. amongst leadership. And then similarly in, in sporting environments where, you know, coaches, I was having this conversation the other day. I think maybe the job tenure for a head coach in the NBA is maybe ticked under two years. Uh, and so as, as key figures in, in the culture and the sustainability of the culture, if it's less than two years, like, yeah, you've got to pour some significant thought and, and energy into making sure that there's something left for the, the people and you're not handing it over in a, complete rabble you know, you're touching on there as well this whole talent war that's going on at the moment um you know since belonging came out i've been very grateful i've had a lot of you know businesses around the world have made contact just have some conversations around this because what they're finding is it is so hard now to attract talent because there's a shortage of it and um and so much competition for it but also very very difficult to retain it and you know my question back to them is that how do you expect to either attract or retain talent if you don't have a powerful narrative and story about this is who we are this is why we're here and this is what we're working towards our vision of the future and you know all of those things are fundamental to belong and you know so i think it's going to be exciting next few years i think people are shifting talent is not just about you know we can offer someone five thousand pounds more or $5,000 more, and that's enough. That's not enough. You know, and I know my kids are coming through and I can see that in them. They want to be part of something very meaningful and they need that to be articulated well to them. And, you know, they need to be treated fairly and that's reflected in remuneration, of course, but it's not just that. I think I think that hypothesis is wrong. I think that there's wider level of storytelling that's needed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just on the face of it, this is the first generation of abundance, right? Like too much, too much food, too much stimulation too, and probably too much money. Like post-war we've done so well, that a lot of families aren't scrounging around. And so an extra thousand dollars on the paycheck starts to diminish in terms of its perceived value versus yeah. if it was 1952 and you were like, Oh my God, you know, my family lost everything. And you know, now, you, you, again, you're about to see the, the greatest inheritance of all time transition to a new generation. And so if you think that, yeah, it's going to be an extra couple of grand yeah. is going to cut it in, in 10 years' time, they've just inherited you know, the family heirlooms that have, uh, that have been passed down. And so, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting space. Let's keep going on, on this path because we, we want to, kind of lay out a bit of a vision for the next decade for, you know, leadership and coaching and business and sport and, and these industries that are kind of caught in the middle of a lot of different things and unsure what to pay attention to. So let me just throw it open to you. Where does your mind go initially when we start talking about the next decade and what's going to be important in leadership? I think we are going to talk about energy a lot more than we do at the moment. I think 
people are going to stop seeing culture as soft and fluffy and see it as very, very hard. And the way they're going to do that is they're going to understand that our environments and the way we behave in them has a profound effect on the hormonal state of the other people. And that in turn affects their energy levels. So we're going to get more sophisticated as some high performing organizations are doing now around understanding the effects of cortisol and adrenaline, which are the two most energizing hormones we have, but have a big high cost to them. So they will energize us to do something very, very quickly. Now uh, you will get action if you um, create an environment and you lead people in a way with these high levels of stress and adrenaline. That's true. But there's a big cost. It's it's not sustainable. It's exhausting. It, it diminishes people's cognitive abilities when they're in that anxiety state. It affects even short-term memory is, is diminished. Um, males, in particular, people generally communicate less and and certainly are less vulnerable when they're in a high anxiety state. Whilst when we have create environments where there's a balance and there's a management of the stress. And there's dopamine promoting, oxytocin promoting, serotonin promoting um, activities and stimulus in the environment. Then we create a different hormone soup, which is energizes us in a different way. It, it encourages trust and encourages collaboration, encourages creative thinking. Um, it ties us to a vision and and, be, and and to work together towards it rather than feel like you know in self preservation and an individualistic mode. So I, I think some teams I've, you know, I've worked with, I'm sure you're the same, have, are really going deep into understanding what really would be an ideal hormonal profile for their performers to be in and then adapting the way that the week is structured, the way they lead, the language they use, the rhythm of the week um, in order to promote that so that when the performance is happening, they're in the optimal state. And I actually think a ton of that translates into a corporate environment and that I'm sure in the next 10 years will become pretty ubiquitous and will transform the way people think and lead, you know, workplaces. I do too. And I'm glad we started here because this is a majority of my work at the moment is trying to dig head coaches out from underneath all the bullshit that puts them in a state of depletion. And again, as experts in human performance and what humans are capable of, if anyone should know the detrimental effects of all of these stressors that we put you know, key decision makers under before they get to game time, <laughs> it should be us. Like this is our world. And so, you know, a lot of it is, is reframing just the social narratives around things like exercise, where it's, it's actually perceived as an energy taker rather than an energy giver to a lot of people, right? Like if I go on a long run, I'm going to be tired and I'm going to deplete my resources rather than the other way around and look at the, you know, the clear physiological and psychological benefits of even just going for a walk as an energy giving activity, that can have a huge knock-on effect to, yeah, all of the, the things that you talked about, but just the the clarity of mental state that someone needs to be in to make, you know, high-pressure decisions or 
be aware of things and notice nuanced things in how a point guard is dribbling with his left hand to be able to point that out to them in the middle of a game with 40,000 spectators yelling at you. And so I think there's a social element of it too, in terms of starting to look at, at energy that way so that we're looking at activities the right way rather than kind of how they're, they're a little bit perceived at the moment. Yeah, I think we're slowly more enlightened around this, but we've, we, I think the neurobiology will accelerate it. So it, it just taking up your example, you know, quite often if a player makes a mistake in a team, it'll be review, it'll be part of the review meeting, it'll be put on the screen, they'll be highlighted. But actually in a, in a group, in a, in a team, there will be a real range of people who've got capacity to take that social shaming. Some people can deal with it. It's okay. It's fine. No, it's not comfortable, but they can deal with it. Other people, you will shut them down for a year from a um, vulnerability point of view, from a psychological safety point of view, if you do that, because they come from environments which are very collectivist and that the worst thing that can really happen to an individual is to be shamed socially. So, we, we, you know, but both of those individuals, the one who can handle it may be and the one who is hardwired for that to be the worst thing ever. Um, they will have completely different hormonal reactions to that and we'll learn more about it. We'll understand it. Same with feedback. I sometimes, you know, give an example when I was a lawyer, you know, I would give feedback quite a direct matter of fact way. And, you know, but I think a kind way, I was certainly came from a good place, but I'll just be matter of fact about it. And, you know, there were examples I remember where a junior lawyer would cry based on, I'd give them feedback to say that piece of work, unfortunately, I wasn't able to afford it to the client. I had to redo that myself. I stayed up very late to do it. At your level, you know, I'd really expect you to be able to be much more practical in the way that you had have, had written that for the client. And, you know, this is something we're going to have to come back to because we just need to get this bit right, you know, and it's and then they just heard that you don't belong here. That's basically what they were hearing from me. And, and I, so I put them in a highly stressed and anxious state which diminish their performance in the next weeks and days, you know, days and weeks and probably months. Whilst, you know, now when I'm coaching a, a coach or, a, or, a, or a, a business leader, you know, we make sure that before we give tough feedback, we first of all consider the social context and pick out the right environment to do it in. Um, and then we anchor the, that conversation around, um, this is why you are in this team. This is what we love about you. And then this is the vision that we co-created together, you know, and we take them back to that conversation. So this is what we believe you could be capable of. Okay, and, and now let's have a bit of a chat around where we feel we are now and what the gap is between how we're performing in this moment and the, the potential that you have. You create a completely different hormonal state for that individual, literally measurable. And so I think we're going to learn more about it. We're going to, and it become intuitive. I actually personally believe it was intuitive for our ancestors. <laughs> might sound a bit mad, but some of the things in my, you know, part of my background is Polynesian, as you know. And I, you know, a thousand years ago, before the Polynesian navigators would explore 25% of the Earth's surface, the Pacific Ocean, without any maps, a written language, any instruments, the night before they would go and voyage, they would, the, the navigator would have the crew in a circle and they would go around and explain again to them the purpose of why they're going on the voyage, the vision of what a fantastic, successful voyage would be, and then asked everybody to go around and um, explain their role on the crew. 
and then asked anyone if anyone had any questions. And that, that's like now it would be incredibly enlightened. It's a thousand years ago. But I think they instinctively knew that if they reconnected everyone to the vision, they had great clarity around it. They made everyone understand that not only did they belong, but they had a valuable role in, in whether we succeeded or not, that it created a hormonal state, which got the best performance out of them rather than you know putting the fear of God into them. Yeah, that's the other thing that I've been spending a lot of time on is like group energy, right? Like I, I, I'm a big fan of the kind of self-awareness kick and the, the reflection and everything that we're doing, but it can't be the end state. Right? Like the, the way that I kind of put it is a self-aware person out in the woods is still fast food for a tiger, right? But, but where the self-aware person starts to become really interesting is when they meet another self-aware person and another self-aware person. And now they're taking on the tiger with a, a collective understanding and there's a, a collective vision and a collective plan. And, and where that I think ends up going with, with coaching in particular is the, the understanding of group energy and what's necessary to help in those circumstances. So like, what do you say to a group that's just lost their fourth game in a row and they're sitting on, you know, in a crumpled heap in the locker room, you know, four close games and haven't quite got to their, their, their goals or their optimum performance. And, you know, what do you, do you, do you burst in and give them the hairdryer treatment? Is that going to help? And the answer is maybe. Or do you, do you burst in and say something that's going to be more helpful in terms of moving forward? And so talking of like energy, I'm really compelled by like, what is the group energy of 53 NFL players and how do you interpret that and make a decision on what's going to help them to move forward? Yeah. I, just on that one, I had, not that long ago, a coach called me and the, his team actually literally what you just said, they lost four games in a row and were struggling and they were getting very frustrated. The fans were getting very, very annoyed and putting pressure on the, on the manager. The um, media were, you know, as you can imagine, pretty relentless on them. And, you know, he, he just called me the night before uh, the next game and said, this is a team talk I'm thinking of giving. And it was a pretty much a shaming type of conversation it was he was trying to energize them but he was basically saying people are laughing at you i'm not proud of what i see when i the way we're playing i'm not proud of that you know i feel embarrassed as a coach um you know the media are saying this and that the fans you know we can hear the booing at the end of the games and you know basically what type of people are we like we, we need to front up tomorrow so it was all based on that type of energy from coming from a pretty negative place that you're humiliated, it's embarrassing, you need to show that you're a decent human being. And I, I, I just asked him the question, I said, you know, you've got a son. If he was in this team, what impact would that have on him? And he sort of paused and then answered back and he said, completely de-energize him, to be perfectly honest. It would, he, he would lose all confidence and and drive and um he'd probably be listless so i said well, why would we expect that a, a, a different group of guys who don't happen to be your children but same species well why do you think that would be different and you know then he he, he did he 
went 180 degrees and reconnected back. This is the vision of what we could become. And we all know that we're nowhere near it. And these are the two or three key things that are holding us back. And just simplified it, but reconnected them back to a much better version of themselves. Go out and win the game, get back on a good run. Now, I'm not saying it was just because of that team talk, but I think you are dead right that when you use the lens of energy, I think it can really sharpen up your decision-making about how you relate to people and how you can affect groups. Can I throw another one at you? Because this is ultimately one of the factors that goes into that negative, um, you know, team talk and, and kind of, you know, using fear in various ways to try to motivate and push forward, which again is, is useful, but not on a prolonged period of time and can't be your MO like it has been in the past. Um, where do you sit on like our sense of competition and competitiveness and what we deem to be a competitor? Cause I, what I see is a really warped version of competition at the moment where I don't think we fully understand it or comprehend it. Like it, it should be, which is, you know, pitting yourself up against the best is is a supreme competitor or supreme competition rather than what I see is unless we've stepped on their throat and won by a hundred, like that's, that's not acceptable. Mm. What do you see in that space? Well, I'm a big fan of Pete Carroll, who is, uh, you know, his whole philosophy is based around competing. And, you know, one of the things I love about his, approach is that the competition is fundamentally intrinsic now you are competing with yourself as an individual to um, get somewhere close to the best version of what you could be both as a person but also as an athlete or whatever other type of performer but also it's exactly the same as a team ultimately the competition is to how close you can get to your full potential as a team and the in some ways the opposition are just a a facilitator to your own story and your own journey that you're on. And I, I sometimes get asked the question of like, you know, what are the motivational talks when it's England, Scotland or things like that? And it's people, I think fans might be a bit disappointed, but it's, uh, I, I don't think I can recall any of those, you know, us and them type tribal speeches. In fact, you know, I worked with the South African cricket team for quite a few years and, um, you know, players like Hashim Amla, the first ever Muslim captain of his country, um, he would talk about amongst his own team his love for the opposition. Because without them, we do not get to represent the people that we love and care about. This experience doesn't exist without them. But also, if you look at them and look at them in the eye, that they have exactly the same aspiration as we do. Um, they are trying to be the best version of themselves and they're trying to make people proud as well. So you should respect that, that we're not better than them. They're not the bad guys. They're just a different version of us. Very inclusive way to look at the whole world, I suppose. And so there's, I think there's a bit of maturation around all that, that competition is, unfortunately, obviously, people are totally obsessed with the scoreboard and very, very harsh on people when it's not doesn't read the right way. Um, 
But if you're just completely outcome focused, then as you know, you're not really ever going to grow people to their full potential. If you just need to do whatever you do to scrap a result at the end of the week, you end up doing short, making shortcuts and neglecting, you know, the individual development in those relationships. For me, the ideal state of competition is that it's against a worthy opponent. And so whether you deem that opponent yourself and you being worthy of performing at a extremely high level or whether you deem that worthy opponent to be literally the opposition. I think that needs to be in place for you to have a sense of competition and competitiveness. And so, you know, again, there's, there's these kind of throwaway lines that are in locker rooms everywhere, right? Like they don't want it as much as we do. And, you know, we owe these guys and all these kind of things. And it's like, well, let's, let's just take that one example. They don't want it as much as us. Like they have exactly the same training regimen and schedule and (laughs) they're giving up just as much time and are just as well prepared and all of these things as us. And so, yeah, I think, uh, I think we need to revisit a certain amount of respect around that. And ultimately that comes back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of margins, like, you know, that worries me a little bit in terms of we should have beaten them by more. And it's like, well, maybe, but in this particular battle, which is capped at 90 minutes or a hundred minutes or 120 minutes, we didn't, but we did succeed in our mission and they were a worthy opponent and they, they were closer to their, their talent ceiling um, today. And I think that can be okay. We can move on. I think it's a generational issue here as well. I noticed um, one of the teams, I was working with an England sports team, don't need to say which one, but we're playing against Scotland. And I was interested in the coach gave a, a talk, you know, before you know, the day before, and it was about the history of the rivalry between England and Scotland. And again, coming back to the concept of energy, he was trying to energize them in a motivational way, you know, dopamine, oxytocin, um, sort of storytelling. And I could tell just the players were, were interested. Like they don't feel that. This generation, they play video games, they, follow athletes often in certain sports rather than teams. You know, my son's a big NBA fan, but he'll follow his favorite players around wherever they go and support those teams, which is completely different from the tribal way that, you know, I grew up as a Kiwi and we, the Aussies and, and so that was a big deal for us. And also we didn't have as much content around. So, you know, when the All Blacks played the Wallabies, once a year or twice a year or whatever it was, you know, that was a big, big deal. Now there's just so much distraction. So I, I actually, for my generation, having a big rah-rah story about England against Scotland would have had some effect. Don't think it does for this generation. And I, so therefore you've got to recalibrate what success actually is and just beating the old enemy isn't one of them. It's going to have to be something about our own story. And also I think the younger generation they really want to express themselves and they want to express talent. I think this is a big theme. You, you were asking about the next 10 years. I actually think there's going to be big pushback against coaches who won't let people play. And it's it's quite interesting in rugby over here. Obviously, I'm involved with Harlequins who play quite an expansive style. 
and sort of caught the attention of people when they won the, won the championship last year. But the British-Irish Lions went and toured South Africa and played a very sort of austere style of rugby, which people really push back on. And I think athletes, are, and I've had this myself in private conversations with some top athletes where they say, I am not enjoying playing international sport because I'm not allowed to express the talent that God gave me. And they feel very, very conflicted actually playing for their country because it's such often a conservative, cautious approach because they don't want to lose, you know, the, you know, and I think there'll be pushback. That'd be my prediction. The next 10 years is that not, you know, if you think about from a work point of view, people have had a lot of more autonomy in the last two years with COVID and lockdowns and dislocation from workplaces they're not all going to go back to the workplace and say, oh, okay, so you're going to take all the autonomy back here. Yeah, no problem at all. It's not going to happen. It's going to be baked in that actually we're going to have a lot more give and take, more autonomy, less micromanaging. And I think on the sports front, we will get that. People will say, you know what? Winning is important, get it. But we want to play an entertaining style and entertaining for ourselves as well as the fans. So I'm, I'm hopeful that this could be a great era of entertainment coming. Yeah, I think so too. And you touched on something there that I think actually plugs into that idea around creativity and, and, you know, what athletes can create and express and it's video games. And you see this conversation everywhere. If you're paying attention to professional sports and it's, it's essentially why are they spending so much time in their rooms playing video games and how do we stop them from playing so many video games and over such duration. And I actually think that's the wrong question, mate. I think the question should be what is so compelling about the video games that makes them keep coming back and wanting to um, express themselves in that way. So when you know the answer to that, it's something around story and journey which every video game captures. It's something around freedom of expression and the fact that you can move around in various ways and kind of play the game your way. And so the question should be, what is so compelling about that and how do I get more of it in my environment so that there's less mundanity in what they're doing with their sport and more creativity that's just kind of captivating them in the way that a video game would. I think that's the actual proper question. Oh, I like that. Uh, I, I've been on a bit of a journey of this myself. My son's uh, 14 and my daughter's eight. And when you know the, we had the first lockdown, my son didn't play video games. I, I don't even know whether we had a PlayStation or Xbox. I can't even, if we did, it wasn't used. Um, and then in the, that first lockdown, my son started playing you know, PlayStation with his friends. And I, I, my immediate reaction was, oh, my God, this is a freaking disaster. Like, he's, he's tw- he was 12 at that point, and he never really played video games. And all of a sudden, he's playing, and he's actually playing, like, two, three, four hours a day with, you know, in these games. And, I, and, and I'm walking past the room doing my own thing and just looking in, and there's just him looking at a TV. And I started to get a little bit panicky about it. And, but also, obviously, we're all stuck in the house together, so I didn't want to cause a big deal and, and conflict by telling him he couldn't do it. So I tried to, I tried to understand, observe it. What I noticed, I hadn't appreciated, was that when he was playing these games, if you actually stop and listen, there's three or four of his mates who are 
playing together. And actually, when he was talking, he's talking to them, not the game, which I thought he was talking to, shouting at the screen, but he's actually talking together. And so and what I realized is that in that moment of, um, you know, sort of basically global disconnection from each other and those guys, and, and that are critical ages, obviously, for social bonding and maturation, is that this was actually an incredibly beneficial thing for him. He was having his friendship. Uh, he was having a laugh. He was having conversations with his mates. It was all through the fact that they were video gaming together. And I, I, it changed my mind completely that, you know, there are risks around it. Don't get me wrong. I get that. but And it has to be managed um, with them. But it's a positive thing. And one interesting thing, which is not a good thing, but when we got out of the lockdown, a couple of friends of my sons who we've been playing video games with, they did not go back to football and they didn't go back to athletics. They on a Sunday, Saturday mornings, they just stayed and played video games with each other. And my son loves playing rugby and he he was happy to resume that and he's done that. But the other two gave up sport, which is not a healthy thing. But the reason was is that obviously it's easy and it's fun, but also that they enjoy the social connection with each other on the weekend. And, you know, I've tried to raise that point over here a couple of times with some governing bodies of sports, and I don't really get much more than a bit of a blank look. Like, to me, that's a fundamental challenge to participation in sport, is that they had the rhythm and routine of playing disrupted. They found video gaming has a lot of benefits for them, and they haven't gone back to sport. But the people who are running the sport I just can't quite see the proactive things they're doing to drag them back in and hopefully try and reset them to do both, not give up very healthy activity. Precisely. You mentioned your daughter there as well. What does her future look like over the next 10 years in terms of you know, sport and, and opportunity? Um, well, hopefully part of it will be a more enlightened father. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've got a story that goes with, with that. It's quite a genuine comment. Um, I've, I've never regarded myself as sexist or gender discriminatory in any way. Um, I've had, I've, you know, my father died when I was five. I was brought up by my mother. I've always had powerful, awesome, charismatic woman around me, really. And, and you know, lots of them. My grandmother was an amazing woman. Um, you know, we've got powerful stories. I put, uh, talk about it and belonging about my grandmother five generations ago, Pakanui, who had an the most remarkable life. So I've always had these strong females around me and these stories around me. But about two years ago, it was school cross country day. At the, at the, we live in the countryside in England, about three hours north of England, uh, north of London. And it was cross-country day at school. My son, we'd just come back from New Zealand, and my son had won the school cross-country the year before. So, he's, you know, he's a decent sort of runner, middle-distance runner. So it was school cross-country day, and we're having breakfast together, and we're just sitting there, myself and my son and my daughter and my wife, and I, I said uh, to my son, Tom, you know, cross-country day today, you're good to go? And he said, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I said, what, what, you know, what are your tactics? And he said, oh, I'll just go out, you know, charge out and go as hard as I can. And I said, well, wait, wait up. Well, how, how did you win that race last year? And he sort of, oh, you know, that's right. I sort of started a little bit slow, let the other guys sort of go out fast. They tied up and then I sort of caught them up and then we went past them. I said, okay, so do you think that's maybe a good approach for today? He said, no, yeah, definitely, I'll do that. And, you know, I said to Livy, my daughter, you know, are you running today? Yes. 
Yes, I am. I said, oh, great. You have a fun time, okay? You enjoy yourself, you know. And so anyway, end of the day, and I'm a very competitive person, so at the end of the day, I've been thinking about this all day, got home and sat down with the kids for dinner and just turned to Tom and said, how to get on today, mate? How'd the race go? And he said, I, I didn't uh, actually run in it because I'm house captain. There was only five of our house we were allowed to enter. I was just about to start, but a young kid came up to me and he didn't realise that he, he wasn't allowed to enter and he'd been training for like a month. And he just told me. So I said to him, look, that's okay. You, you can take my place. So I said, okay, that's cool. That's, that's a good bit of leadership from me. So yeah, no, okay. There's a bit of a shame, but no problem. And then um, I said to my daughter, did you, did you have a nice day? Did you get to have a run? And she said, yes. I said, great. Oh, I'm really pleased to hear that. And she said, I won my race. And I said, oh, well, do you want your race? And she said, yes. I listened to you talking to Tom this morning about going slow and then going fast later and passing them. And that's what I did. And I, I won. And then, I, you know, my wife, had, the other mothers were telling her how she literally just sprinted at the end. And, put it at the end. and I, it was the first I felt absolutely ashamed by that, that for whatever reason, I'd completely put my focus on him excelling in sport and and, and was very patronising towards my daughter. And it's, that's had quite an impact on me. And we had a conversation recently. We were watching some women's soccer league over here on TV. And either the commentary or maybe my son picked up on it, there was something about how the women were paid in a pittance of what the men are paid in the Premier League. And my daughter just looked at me and said, are they not paid the same as the men? And I said, no, they're not. And there's a big difference. And she said, why? And I, I was an employment lawyer for 15 years before I became a performance coach. So I understand equal pay and I understand all those things. I could not answer her question. And there's one thing I'm very proud of is that Harlequin's um, rugby team in London who I've joined the board of, we have a vision for the next you know, 10 years. And one of them is pure equality between our men's and women's programs and not to be reacting and um, following others, but we're going to have to lead that ourselves. And I want my daughter, if she ever wants to be in those environments, to have exactly the same uh, experience than she would if she was a male. And it, so it's a bit of a personal mission for me over the next 10 years is to try and enable that to happen. Yeah, that's magic as a, as a vision. And um, I, I hope your daughter continues to bring these things to into your consciousness in whatever way they need to come to you for you to, mm. um, you know, continue to upgrade that. Cause we all need that and we all need those, um, insights. And I hope that leads to a lot more sharing as well in, from coaching, right? Like, again, you, you, you look through all the autobiographies, all the books, all the idea sharing, and it's slanted very heavily one particular way in terms of like what coaches are going through. Um, I tried to equalize even the tough stuff and the, the, you know, the stories about the emotional toll um, that coaches are under. And I just couldn't find the stories or the anecdotes anywhere about them. And so, you know, there's all sorts of things that, that need to, because that's important information for all of us. That's how we all learn together and, and learn where the pitfalls are and learn who's going through what. And, and so it's important for us to continue on that journey, but 
let's talk about Harlequins a little bit because it, it's it captured you know the men's team yeah. captured a lot of imaginations, um, but it's also you know an organisation that's doing things a little bit differently around their their leadership as well. Um, what is it that enables that that way of thinking? Well, I think actually energy is another way we can look at Harlequin. So for, for the listeners who, who don't follow rugby, basically in the first quarter of the season last last year, they were in the bottom three, I think, managed to go on a real run, which coincided with letting the head coach go um, and ultimately made the playoffs and then played quite incredible games the semi-final they won an extra time away and then they came from behind to win the final late in the second half um, and became the champions and you know it was interesting because when they were struggling at the start of the season one of the observations from the fans and the media was this team has got no energy and to even to the point where people were critiquing the strength and conditioning I mean they don't look fit they're not playing with energy like they just look sluggish you know, at the fast forward to the end of the season, they won a game away in overtime, which is you know it's such a physically hard sport, and they did that comfortably in the end. They they the way they scored in those points, and then they won at the very death of the final after a grueling season, and so everyone was saying that team had unbelievable conditioning and unbelievable energy. They actually were conditioned the same throughout the season. It wasn't it wasn't a physical conditioning issue at all. It was actually a hormonal issue, if you ask me. And that is just the way they were being set up, the game they were being asked to play, probably the 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 sort of engineered stress in the environment during the week, which is pretty common, but I think that was exhausting them. I, I think you can look at it from a, a hormonal point of view that they were very stressed and it was exhausting them. And those feeling that, that those, the dopamine, they didn't really have a clear vision of all, what they could be doing and what they could achieve. There wasn't probably enough time invested in connecting and creating a relational environment, which would increase oxytocin. And um, they didn't do experiential stuff really particularly, which would in, um, induce endorphins, which energizes us massively. Um, so the week was simplified, you know, they cut down to training from four days to three days a week, for example, they put a lot more investment and time into recovery. Um, and you know, the whole narrative changed from probably one where they felt being judged and, um, criticized to a degree to one where they created a vision of a, a sensational season which would go down in history. So a completely mental shift around what the season could be. You know, trying to prove people wrong that didn't respect us, got rid of all that, just created a vision of playing awesome rugby, having an amazing experience together and writing, rewriting the history books. And then that, that created a completely different hormonal state. So I do, you know, we could say all these great strategic things and all the rest of it, but I do think a big reason why they transformed so quickly was simply the environment was shifted, which was able to completely re-energize that group of people. You know, it was exactly the same group of people. They didn't even cha- they didn't even replace the head coach. They just coached by committee, and they got these incredible results. You know, and we do have a head coach now, and we've still retained our competitiveness and our the way we're playing into this season as well. And our goal is to keep that locked in for us, you know, forever. Yeah, and again, I mean, I love that tie into 
a lot of the things that we've been talking about, you know, like interpretations of competitiveness and interpretations of where motivation comes from and, and how you can, you know, push on energy sources, if you will, uh, to create a more positive environment. And just on that energy thing, one thing I laugh about is when I was a, you know, as a partner in a law firm, you know, we, we had to make, we, it's a hard job. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it is actually really, I loved it. And I was, I would be happy to still be lawyering, but I just enjoyed what I'm doing now more, but it is hard. It is, you've got to sort of be intellectually onto it. You know, you've got to be able to analyze things correctly because there's a lot going on this stuff. You've got to be able to manage relationships with clients, with adversaries, with your own team. That is complicated and hard. Um, you've got to be able to sort of visualize and vision different options and what success could ultimately look like. Um, there's a, it's a hell of a lot. It's, not, it's, not, it's a tough job, right? But if you think about it from a performance point of view, it was a badge of honor as a lawyer to have few drinks in the evening, too few too many drinks often, um, to eat terribly, you know, just get ordering the pizzas and at nine o'clock at night and um, absolute crappiest sleeps you can imagine. And, you know, how much sleep you could get out oh, about three or four hours. Oh, yeah, good on you, mate. You know, it's all that sort of macho rubbish. Um, hydration, just a disaster. You know, you know, nutrition equal disaster. People were having the most. And we'd have to perform. And, you know, well, compare it to a high performance environment where our guys come in in the morning and they're having to put into the apps, you know, how much sleep they've had, the quality of it, the hydration, the nutrition, their mood, their energy levels. And, and it's all recorded and it's coded. And, and we, we get patterns to understand an individual and where they are on any given day. And we, we, we have conversations off the basis of that. You know, to me, that is just ludicrous. And also in the high performance space, recovery is, is just about the fundamental concept. If you don't get recovery right, you're not going to be competitive, end of story. Yet in the, in the corporate environment or business environment, not just corporate environment, but any, any working environment, the idea of recovery is you know, completely foreign. Yet as humans, we need to recover at certain times after performing certain tasks and after exerting certain levels of energy. It doesn't have to be time off. It can be done in different ways. So, I, I, again, we, you know, you asked a question, which is a great question. What does the next 10 years look like? I'm predicting that workplaces will start following principles of recovery and well-being, and you will get workplaces where individuals actually will provide daily input into their mood, their energy, their, their sleep. And if they're not sleeping well, we will get experts to come in and educate them and help them sleep better because a lawyer who's sleeping seven hours, eight hours a night is going to perform at another level than a lawyer who's doing three or four. But at the moment, there's some cognitive dissonance around all this stuff, which I completely do not get. So I see that as part of your, my, your job and my job. Like I've got three siblings. I want them to have awesome work experiences and I want to see these principles shared in those environments and not just contained in these, you know, so-called elitist high performing places. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's where the next 10 years comes from is, you know, my thinking around in 10 years, it's actually 12, but 
that's not as captivating, obviously, uh, the next 12 years as a title, but, <laughs> you know, I'll be 50. Um, would have spent a decade working on this problem in terms of fixing coaching and, and leadership in sport and what that needs to look like for this next generation. And what I'm really excited about, this would be my one. If I were asked to give a narrative on the next decade, it's that I'm so excited and optimistic about substance and the need to have substance in what you're doing in sports coaching. And the reason for that is the former player that is just coasting into a job in coaching is going to start to phase out because there's going to be people that have substance and they have color and they have craft and they understand effectiveness and they take care of their well-being as the foundation of performance like we treat it with athletes. And so they arrive at game time and they arrive at training with awareness and decision-making and communication skills at their absolute optimum. And so they coach better, but it also means that they understand the game at a high level, because if you can analyze it faster, analyze what happens and then what needs to happen without having to troll through 24 hours of vision, if you can kind of look at it and paint a picture and make an analysis of what needs to happen forward, it starts to unpack from there. And so you need substance to do that though. Otherwise you just bring back what's been done and the lack of understanding of, of the game. And, and so that's what I'm most excited for and to see people get opportunities that come through coaching pathways that are, a little bit more obscure than they are currently from different sport. The Ted Lasso model could become the norm in 10 years where you're looking at, can you coach an invasion sport? Yes. Okay. Well, you can, for all intents and purposes, understand soccer at the same level as an Aussie rules coach, because it is the same game underneath when you strip it back. Um, so can you coach my team? <laughs> That could become the norm in, in 10 to 12 years. And they just bring a new color to what we're doing. Mm. I, I don't think you're wrong there. I think that's, you know, it's a fun program, but I think there are a lot of people, and I've had some quite senior business people who have actually referenced that program, Ted Lasso, around that, that idea that this is potentially very translatable if you're just good with people. And yeah, understand some of the basic concepts. Just, just what something you said there, which I, I love, is this idea of substance. And this will be my wish for the next ten years, is that we mature away from the hero leader model into the guardian model. And to me, substance is not, you know, you're lucky now because I've arrived. I'm a genius. I understand things, and I see things people don't see. I, I've got this super way of um, manipulating and managing people which is amazing you know I, I you follow me this is about me but but if you follow me we'll be all be successful and moving away from all that what I would call crap to the guardian leader which is that they understand that they are being given the responsibility to look after a, a, a community of people which has a history that predates them and will have a history that postdates them as well and you know, the, and the metaphor that I use from my you know Maori 
spiritual beliefs is this idea of the sun moving down this line of people from our origin story to the end of time. And, 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 and all of us are part of that line of people with our arms interlocked and understanding that when the sun's shining on us, that's our time. But we have a responsibility as a guardian leaders to understand exactly what it is that we are inheriting. And also to identify what needs mending because it's often not perfect by any means. Um, so we, and, and, ultimate, and, and we're trying to create something which will empower those who will come after us, not leave them scrambling and not leaving them having to waste a lot of time and energy fixing things. So that's what we're about. And if that includes a style of play, then, um, you know, even we might have our own preferences as a coach, but we buy into this is the way that this club and the fans and the, they believe in. And, you know, when I look at Manchester United, actually, I'm not a Manchester United fan. I don't particularly follow any specific football club. It upsets me, to be honest, because I feel like that has got an amazing history, heritage, identity. There was a continuity in guardianship between Busby through to Ferguson, where they, they believed in a certain style of play. They believed in creating a certain type of environment. They believed in playing with a high tempo. They believed in giving the young players who came through the academy opportunity. They believed in all these things. And then after Ferguson left, there seems to be a breakdown in the transmission of what this culture is. And you've had a group of a series of hero leaders have been recruited. Mourinho and is one example, which actually don't represent their identity at all. And but you know, we'll just follow them because they're the hero leader and hopefully they can bring trophies. It hasn't worked out and it hasn't been satisfying. And I think a lot of the fans I know think it's been soulless. So and you guys been appointed, and maybe that's what he will do rather than bring his own version of, of football, try and reconnect them as a good guardian to who they actually they are because it was very, very special. And, you know, so that's for me, I'd love to see that just to mature away from this hero leader model that seems to be everywhere. I agree. And funnily enough, I had this conversation two days ago, exactly with a professional team here in North America about the same thing around, you know, moving away from that model and, and what that means is that the organization does need to understand what they stand for. And quite frankly, they do not. And so it just becomes this, well, you come in as the leader. So you bring, sure, your playing style and the way that you teach, but also your culture and we'll just adapt to that. And I think that's nonsense, mate. Like a, a hundred-year-old organizations deferring to just the latest coach through the door for their culture yeah. I think it's a negligent, it's negligent and it's a it's a breach of your governance to invite someone into your organization and say, you tell us who we are, you tell us what we should do, you tell us what culture we should have, you tell us what the things we should believe in are. Um, I'm certainly not inviting anyone to my family home and, and, and inviting them to do that and tell us, tell the Eastwoods who, who they are, what they should believe in. Um, how they should live their lives, you know, what would be success or not. I think we're pretty locked in around those things. So I think it's, it do. I think it's pretty negligent. And I think boards, that's another thing in the next 10 years, mate, is that I think guys like you and I will do more and more work with board level 
you know, I think when I started my career, I'd often be brought in by a coach and then maybe a performance director and we'd operate there, but there was still a misalignment with the CEO level and then the board level and the senior executive mm. level. And with Harlequin's been a great experience. We've actually had everybody in the same room, literally, to do this together, to, re, to just not invent anything, but articulate what exactly is it that's different and special about us? And how does that manifest itself in the way we are and the way we work in our environment and the way we play? And we've done it all together. So there's a great alignment and that gives me a lot of confidence. But I think a lot of boards, you can be very successful in a business where you have to do linear things, you know, do A, B, C, D, and E, a lot of make, make a lot of money. And I, I do think there's a lot of people who are in these boards that don't understand the complexity of sport where it's not like that because everyone's trying to do the same thing. You actually need to create an incredible and enabling environment, maybe more so than you do when there's just a production line of getting things done and then putting things in a box. And I don't th that's fully appreciated. This comes full circle to what we were talking about right at the start around, you know, selection and retention of talent. And when you understand what it is that your organization stands for, you start to select and retain differently. And, and that's going to be a dramatic shift on its own. You know, like if you were to look, just make a list of the best head coaches in the world in, in football right now, you would select, you know, the winners essentially. But then if you were to make a list of the best coaches that were a fit for your organization and you understood what behaviors and, and beliefs and that what their energy management needed to look like, you would start to look at them differently and you'd be searching and you'd be out on the field, you know, in, in warmups looking for coaches that are displaying those behaviors in the opposition and saying, Oh, that guy might be interesting that we could bring them in would have nothing to do with who you read about in the guardian or the times. And I, and I think that's, that's going to be a huge change and one that's needed. Well, certainly here in England, a great example is Gareth Southgate, the manager of the England football team. I've been lucky enough to work with for the last four, four years or so. And, you know, when he was appointed, he came up from the under 21s coach and, you know, there was like this seemed to be universal. Oh, my God, what what are we doing? Like we could have got a, you know, Pep Guardiola or someone as our national coach and we've, we've promoted under 21s coach into the senior team. And, you know, he, he didn't even have much of a record in club football. But people he now a, think... He was seen as a yes man. Absolutely. Yes man was the thing that he was labelled yeah. as. Yeah, yeah he, exactly. And, you know, but... Now here he would be regarded as one of the great coaches in, in, in British sport. And, you know, he's taken that team well beyond its world ranking to a semi-final of a World Cup where they were leading until, you know, the last quarter of the game and then the finals of the Euros, the first time England ever made the finals of the Euro, European Championships this year. They lost some penalties. And so, and again, well above their world ranking to be achieving those things. And why has he done that? And I, it wasn't these, this, this hero leader that people were, praying for is because he has this incredible understanding of energy and how to create energy amongst that particular group of players in that context of performing under such huge scrutiny. He understands it and he able, is able to create an environment and lead them in a way where he's not overstressing them. He's actually doing the opposite and allowing them to, you know, basically deliver their talent on those big stages. 
So to me, that's much more of a prototype of, of an enlightened progressive leader than the guy who's the alpha um, and the big ego and the hero. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a model on, in all senses, like even the response to what happened in the, the shootout, um, I think was, was really progressive and, and thoughtful and shifted the narrative somewhat. And so, you know, it, it's brave going through that wall first. Um, and so, yeah, he's definitely someone that people should keep an eye on. I'll ask you this because I ask every author, I'm, this will be how we kind of start to wrap up here, mate. The, has there been anything that surprised you since belonging came out that people have latched onto uh, either something that was in there, a particular story, uh, a narrative, did something capture the audience maybe more than you expected? You know, the, the example that I use is I, I bet Gladwell wasn't anticipating 10,000 hours to be like the, the big idea to come out of outliers kind of thing. Was there anything like that, that, surprised you once it became the audience's book and not your book well yeah i suppose so the there's been a lot of comment around it seems to be a book for this moment and what they mean is that this book happened to be published in may this year in the middle of a global pandemic where we've suffered these lockdowns and all sorts of disruption to the way that we normally connect with each other and we've therefore appreciated the fact that if you and I were sitting together today, that we would have a different energy, we'd have a different experience um, and we'd have a different level. It would go, it would take away with us. And, and as we will do when we do sit down together next. And so people really appreciate that connection has been something that's been really undervalued in working environments, including sports teams. It's always been a nice word, you know, connection and belonging, but people haven't quite understood it in the way that they do now. And, and, you know, the book was agreed to be, you know, it was written and it was, and, and all of that well before anyone ever heard of COVID. It was completely coincidental that it came out right in the middle of it. But I've had, a, you know, it's been wonderful in, on many levels, but it's been very interesting from, having you know, some quite serious business people in contact and say that we need to reset our culture now when we do actually get to come back together. And we need to really change the routine and rhythm of what we do to tap into this energy of connection. And we need to get rid of the stuff where we're all siloed and sitting and, and, you know, and people are creating two or three anchor days a week where everyone will come into the office. But on those days, again, they're not just sort of sitting in silos. They actually are now proactively creating, you know, meetings and changing agendas around these are the storytelling and, and doing these things to make people really have that sort of hormonal experience, which energizes them, which they've really missed and felt flattened, some cases depressed, having missed it. So that, that you know, that, that feedback around, you know, it's a book, for this moment in time, that's very nice. Well, obviously it was a complete coincidence, but it's a nice thing for people to say. Yeah. I'm glad our work brought us together, mate. I, I don't know if I shared this. My, my mate, Will Edwards, who's my, my best mate's little brother sent me an, an interview you did on the radio in Australia with the SEN guys. And 
Will Will doesn't send me crap, right? He he knows we we grew up together and he knows me better than most people. And he's like, you better listen to this guy talk about what he's been what he's been up to. And then the next day, the same interview arrived from someone else. And then the next day, the same interview arrived from someone else. <laughs> and so all my mates in Australia yeah, seem listening to the same interview with you on the radio <laughs> and be like, Jesus, Cody better listen to this. So I'm glad that yeah, happened, good. mate. And, um, I'm glad we're connected, but also that, um, you know, we can kind of go along on this journey a, a little bit together and thanks for coming on today. I'm looking forward to sitting down in person. Yes. You promised me it would be in the Cotswolds, yeah. but, um, we'll do the return leg in, in Sligo Island as well. Um, with, uh, with my family. How about that? Oh, I'd love to do that. I've been there before, mate. Absolutely stunning coastline around there. Cool. Home and away. We're on the same page. You know, you've been, you're a big hearted guy and as well as being super smart and, and what you say and the, and the powerful books you write, which I've shared widely myself. So, you know, I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, I, I think my final comment on the next 10 years is that I think coaching will become more and more important. I think the statistics show that it's becoming more important, but we're going to have to lift our game big time. I think in some ways some of the executive coaching got a little bit lazy. I've done it myself. You know, you have your client, you, you, you have a one-on-one relationship with them. It gets a bit comfortable. You're not that accountable. It's sort of focused on them rather than the business and organization. Um, I think we're going to have to lift our game big time. We're going to have to show that we can not only just add value, but contribute to the team organization achieving its goals. And I, I like that because that's the way I work anyway. But I think our, the, the coaching industry is up for a bit of a shake and a bit more spotlight on it. And, you know, long may you help in leading that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, mate. And and all the more reason to continue to share what we're doing and how we're trying to navigate things and show people what the options are and what the standards are. And and so I, I hope we continue to share rather than keep things to our chest. Obviously, confidentiality and you know, when you're working for an organization, all that kind of stuff. But I think we can really help each other with our craft um, so that we can all you know, meet that level together. But, uh, mate, thank you. Thank you for the work that you've done and the work you'll continue to do. And, uh, thanks for coming on where others won't. Hey, thanks for listening all the way to the end. A special thank you to the co-creator of where others won't Adam Esker, who is behind a lot of the technical elements of the show. As always, you can get in touch with me at codyroyal.com or find me on Twitter. Bye for now.